Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Philip Martin in for Callie Crosley this week on Under the Radar. The national COVID-19 public health emergency is coming to an end on May 11th, and it's taking with it access to free COVID tests and vaccines. The emergency has been in place since the early days of the pandemic and has been renewed several times over the last three years. But its end is not only symbolic, it might mean a drastically different level of care for COVID within hospitals. From mandatory mask requirements in care facilities to nationwide data collection, the standards of COVID care that we have all become well acquainted with might be gone by next week. Now, some medical professionals think this is as good as any time to end the emergency status, while others are worried about what this might mean for their patients, specifically those who are uninsured. Later in the show, the hallowed ground of a minor league baseball park, colorful characters playing on the field and hanging around the stadium, and excited local fans. All part of Ryan McGee's memorable summer as an intern with the minor league team, the Asheville Taurus. I remember it every moment because I just had this one concentrated, you know, summer of great memories and stories that I have worn my poor friends and family out with forever. And I had a chance to, to actually write it for everyone else. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time. It's author Ryan McGee's new book, and it's our May selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, joining me remotely, Dr. Shira Darone, an infectious disease specialist physician, chief infection control officer for Tufts Medicine Health System, and the hospital epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. Abdullah Shihipar, a writer and public health researcher at Brown University School of Public Health, and Dr. Atia Martin, CEO and founder of All ACES Incorporated, a distinguished senior fellow at Northeastern University's Global Resilience Institute and former chief resilience officer for the city of Boston. Hello, all of you. Hello. Hello. Hello, sir. It is a real pleasure, uh, but it is a very serious topic as well, isn't it? And um, I want to start by asking you, you know, you keep hearing folks referring to this moment as post-pandemic. And I, for one, I still wear masks going into medical or dental facilities and sometimes to the supermarket and sometimes in large crowds. But most of us seem to have moved on. In your views, and I'm going to start with you, Dr. Dorham. Are we letting our guard down much too soon? Well, I think it really depends on who you're asking about. Um, I, I want to say that there there really should be a, a distinction between the end of the public health emergency and the scientific and epidemiologic place that we're in. Because as you know, the, the public health emergency was really um, a, a political and financial construct. Um, and that public health emergency, those orders didn't have anything about masks in them or vaccine mandates in them. Um, And those decisions that are more infection control, scientific decisions, are really based on where we are in the pandemic epidemiologically and scientifically and what tools we have at our disposal, and not really based on things like congressional decisions and congressional funding. So I do think we need to talk about those in two very different ways. 
Those are two very different things. Uh, and so, so you're right. And uh, to that uh, issue, I'm, I'm just wondering, um, Abdullah, I'm wondering, you're a writer in public health research at Brown University's School of Public Health. You write about these things. Are we past the moment where we should be greatly concerned? Is the White House moving too fast? Is this public emergency over? Are we in a post-pandemic? I wouldn't say we are in a post-pandemic phase. We are in a much better phase than we were before. But the for me, um, the uh, over the death rate is still far too high. It's still around 200 deaths a day. And I think comparatively, when we compare, um, or around it, sometimes it's higher. Um, comparatively, when we compare to the, to the earlier phase of the pandemic, you know, we are obviously, we, we were dealing with thousands, like over a thousand at one point. We are in a much better place. For me, I my work is usually in the overdose space, um, and overdose is still considered a you know public health emergency. And we see a roughly around that same amount of death, uh, that 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 same death toll, and it's widely considered a you know a public health issue, a public health emergency. Um, so questions about you know what people should be doing, what people should be uh, doing right now. I think that was a you know separate and can can um, varied. But I I certainly think that it is still a huge public health issue, and I would characterize it as an emergency. Okay, so um, Abdullah Shihipar, the you would characterize it as an emergency, uh, and I'm wondering, um, Atia, Dr. Atia Martin, you have dealt with the question of inequities within communities. Uh, the Boston community, for example, inequities that uh, essentially confound of, for many, the issues of COVID uh, as an emergency, because you find this emergency uh, has has never ended for some communities. Is that still the case for you? Yes, sir. Thank you for that, that question. And yes, that is the case, that for many families, uh, COVID-19 uh, is still wreaking havoc in their families' lives. So first you have, you still have uh, high uh, infection rates and deaths uh, within working class and uh, communities of color, including uh, undocumented residents or immigrant communities. Um, and so you have this dynamic of the current infection rate uh, being a lot lower than before, as, as has been pointed out, but still disproportionately impacting communities, um, these communities. And then on top of that, uh, you have the, uh, the long COVID impacts that have also disproportionately impacted these communities. And so we, there's to, to the previous speaker's points, we do have this distinction between whether or not um, COVID-19 is over or not. We clearly know that COVID-19 is not over. We are not post-pandemic. People are still dying to the previous point of uh, 200 people per day. Uh, but so as we think about this pandemic and the uh, ending of the emergency, we also know that that uh, to the point about um, ending of some of the policy decisions that ultimately will have disproportionate impact on communities of color, poor people um, and immigrants or, or, and undocumented residents as well, because we're taking it, it's going to take away um, the provisions that have been put in place that support people's access to insurance who didn't have it before. Um, depending on who you talk to, most recently, I've seen uh, some numbers uh, from the Urban Institute that at least 13 million additional people um, uh, were able to get enrolled in Medicaid um, who didn't have health insurance before. And we know that for Medicaid, um, the 
children's health insurance program or CHIP um, and other health care programs that were expanded during this time that it's predominantly poor people and, and, and disproportionately um, people of color. So as these, this emergency ends, we are going to see this cascading impact of people not having access to the health care they need um, to stay healthy. We will still have access to um, vaccines, which is good um, uh, at low or no cost, um, but we will lose the testing component. Panel, I just want to talk about some of the other barriers. You talked about uh, insurance, Atiyah, as one barrier, uh, as one concern uh, as uh, this emergency ends officially. I'm wondering what are some of the other uh, concerns that you might have. Uh, some of the political um, rhetoric around um, COVID, it's, it's still out there. And so you have communities where vaccination rates are high, uh, perhaps because many people refuse to get vaccinated. I assume that to be uh, a real reason. Uh, and you also have uh, uh, people who refuse to get vaccinated because of the prevalence of conspiracy theories. Can you talk about those factors in terms of uh, how uh, you think, what you think might occur next in terms of this emergency? You still have the, again, the conspiracy theories out there, and there's still resistance to vaccination. So what happens? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as an infectious disease doctor, um, it's of great concern to me that um, uptake of vaccines has not been what we want it to be in this country um, and at times has, has been disproportionate uh, across socioeconomic, racial, and geographic lines. Um, now, uh, sort of the good news is that the differences between between the vaccinated and unvaccinated people have been decreasing over time as the people who are not vaccinated are getting repeatedly infected and, and generating immunity the hard way, the, the, the less um, advised way. Um, and, and so, you know, the FDA and CDC a couple of weeks ago did make this decision, and I hope it helps, to, to make it so that anyone who even if you haven't been vaccinated before can get the bivalent, the updated vaccine, which was not the case before, um, and only need to get one dose to be fully up to date, um, just as up to date as anybody who's had five or six doses. And, and you know, things like that hopefully will decrease some of the barriers to people getting vaccinated. Are we there yet? Should we, uh, I mean, should people feel if someone has one vaccine shot that they could feel comfortable being around that person? Well, you know, the, I, I attended the meetings. Um, they presented some compelling data that essentially every American has immunity um, from vaccine infection or both. And so everyone's had one quote unquote dose of immunity uh, and they've made the come to the conclusion that that means that people can sort of top themselves off with one single dose. And hopefully that will make it easier for people to start that process if they haven't done so. And of course, you know, all of the the recommendations over the last few years have been, you know, flying the building the plane while flying it. And we figure out afterwards whether it worked. And, and you know, that's the nature of a pandemic of a novel virus. Well, speaking of planes, I'm, I still find large numbers of people wearing masks. Uh, there's, that's one place where I still see a large number of people wearing masks, which is still on the planes. Um, are you assured by that uh, information uh, that was just uh, shared by Dr. Doron um, Ab Abdullah? Yeah, so like I said, I think that we are making progress, and I think there are definitely, uh, there, obviously, we are in a better place uh, 
where we are in a better place in the pandemic than we were before. Where I'm concerned with vaccination and and specifically the issue that you mentioned about, you know, uh, there being lack of uh, vaccination uptake due to various reasons. My concern is that as the public health emergency ends and funding for vaccines slowly runs out, they're in the interim moment in the, for the next couple of months, the federal government has um, both secured funding for the uninsured through a separate program, and there will be, um, you know, the stockpile that the federal government has bought, you will have, you will also have access to. I mean, I believe private insurers should cover the cost, but, you know, as we know, everything with insurance in the United States, things are highly consistent, inconsistent. Um, my worry is that, though, as these, you know, this funding eventually runs out, or, you know, potentially we have new sterilizing vaccines, which are better, um, and we don't necessarily have the supports in place to get, you know, the uninsured, these vaccines and the um, the price point of the vaccines becomes just too much. You know, you've heard Pfizer and Moderna quoting numbers of upwards of $100. Um, that will further compound on the inability of people to get vaccines. So, you know, in, at the end of the day, I we recognize that it's really beneficial for people to get vaccinated, um, even if we are in a better stage of the pandemic. And I'm still in, incredibly concerned about uptake going forward, particularly because we are still dealing with the vast majority of people who are still dying are either the elderly or the immunocompromised. And so I'm concerned about the people, the elderly and the immunocompromised and, and the people who are around them. And there's another concern, of course, also, and that is long COVID, long-term COVID. Uh, Tia Martin, Dr. Tia Martin, what's your view uh, and how do you find that impacting uh, communities? And, and is there resilience? Uh, long-term uh, COVID seems to be taking a toll uh, disproportionately. Is that correct? So yes, long COVID has been uh, disproportionately impacting communities of color, particularly Black and Latinx communities, um, and in certain areas of the country, uh, Native American um, or Indigenous communities as well. I think for us, as we're having this conversation, um, it is critical to understand that that is a, a relationship between long COVID and that that disproportionate burden and the uh, disproportionate burden of COVID-19 infections that happen over the course of this ongoing pandemic. Um, and so as we think about the continued um, inconsistent kind of risk communication and public messaging around COVID-19, um, the end of this public health emergency, the lack of consistent conversations about even what is long-term COVID-19, how is it impacting people? what are some of the options available to folks in their communities to try to manage the symptoms that they're dealing with given the broad scale and spectrum of what those symptoms are. Everything from memory challenges, short-term memory challenges, all the way up to uh, COVID diabetes and everything in between, um, people are slowly figuring out that they even have long-term uh, long COVID because we're not having a more sophisticated um, uh, public health or risk communication uh, messaging around these matters to support communities to understand wh what is happening to them and what is available to support them. And it is disproportionately impacting communities of color. Well, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin filling in for Cali. And I'm speaking with Dr. Atia Martin, CEO and founder of All Aces Incorporated, 
We're also talking with Dr. Shira uh, Doron, uh, Chief Infection Control Officer for Tufts Medicine Health System, and uh, Abdullah Shihipra, a writer and public health researcher at Brown University uh, School of Public Health. And we're talking about what the end of the national COVID emergency means for us. I can tell you what it means for some folks, uh, for example, in Toronto. Uh, here's Dr. Isaac Bogash. He's an infectious disease specialist in Toronto speaking about what he thinks about the end of the national COVID emergency. And this was during a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation interview earlier this year. Before we had therapeutics, before we had vaccinations, we really saw a a lot of patients and many patients died. And uh, it was tragic. Even though it might not meet the criteria, that doesn't mean that the threat or the risk is over. And with that, folks, I want to ask this question. Uh, This is a way of talking about the fact that this COVID and the pandemic obviously knew no borders. There was no recognition of a border. And as you know, uh, the Biden administration is sending about 1,500 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border next week ahead of the lifting of Title 42. Uh, That's uh, the uh, the policy which allowed U.S. agents to turn away asylum seekers at the border due to the pandemic. Now, the concern being expressed by by mainly conservative politicians, but not exclusively, is that tens of thousands of unvaccinated migrants and asylum seekers will be entering the country and further exposing the country to a new round of COVID. That's their argument. But politics aside, are are they right in any way, shape, form, or fashion? Uh, Let's start with you, uh, Abdullah. Um, so I have always been opposed to Title 42 from the get-go, I, especially because I saw it as using a really a, a xenophobic policy that used public health as a pretext to um, to basically keep migrants out of the country. And so you can we can call it a policy to for to manage the flow of people into the country and immigration policy, what have you, and people can debate about you know. Um, about immigration policy, I, for one, am strongly opposed to Title 42, but I did not see it as a public health policy necessarily, partially because there was no consistency at that point. There was, uh, at this point, we were, you know, quote unquote, letting the virus like rip through the country. And yet they, you know, the, the, the fear mongering around migrants being unvaccinated and coming in and spreading COVID, um, was used as a talking point to to again further restrict the move the, the movement of people. So I don't necessarily see at this point COVID is spreading across the United States. That doesn't mean we need to you know we can't um, take uh, steps to to tackle it within the United States. But it's just it's not going to a bunch of people coming uh, coming to the border is not necessarily going to increase the burden of COVID in the United States. And also, you know, when you intake people into the U.S. when they claim asylum, which, again, is like an international (laughs) right, even if uh, people uh, even if that has become sort of diluted over the years, uh, you can give people vaccinations as they as they come into the United States, you can get them COVID tested. So if anything, when you're processing these people, there are steps in place to actually like catch the virus and you know uh, give give people treatment and like kind of stem the flow if that is an accurate concern, a legitimate concern. All of you have spoken convincingly about uh, where we are uh, currently in this uh, emergency, and uh, th- I guess there is an argument that can be made that uh, we have developed. Um, the type of immunity that uh, makes ending the national health emergency that gives it credence. That, uh, uh, but there's also concern that this was a politically directed uh, decision. 
Uh, here is Maureen uh, Gropi, a White House correspondent for USA Today, explaining earlier this year some of the reasoning behind why the Biden administration decided to end the national health emergency. We still are seeing a lot of um, uh, deaths from COVID. It's, it's still up there among the leading causes of death. But the real emergency aspect of the pandemic has passed, and there's a lot of pressure from Republicans to end these special measures. And in fact, the House is going to be voting on resolutions to end that immediately. And so the White House tried to preempt those votes by announcing the emergencies will end on May 11th. And they said that if you have an abrupt end, that would create, quote, wide-ranging chaos and uncertainty throughout the healthcare system. My concern, again, is the politics uh, that play into all of this. We have a situation where someone as eminent as Dr. Fauci, for example, has been demonized uh, by a large portion of the country. Has politics played too great a role in getting to where we are right now? Uh, You've spoken objectively about the ending the national health emergency, but does politics still play a prevailing role that distorts where we are at the moment? The easy way to answer that question is just to say yes. Uh, the I think part of the reality is politics can, if we let it, uh, get in the way of good public health policies and practices. Um, and I think during this COVID-19 pandemic, we what we're seeing um, today and what we've seen throughout this pandemic are representative of the ways that politics has influenced um, the decisions that were made and whether or not the experts, the public health and healthcare experts, um, were really able to take effective measures um, to protect the health and safety, protect, promote, and preserve the health and safety of uh, Americans. Um, And so you see a replication of that um, in many ways. And the last thing I'll say to this point relatedly um, is that what we see with COVID-19 is what we see with all disasters and emergencies, which is that they surface and worsen the existing problems that we have in communities with the infrastructure that we depend on. Um, And during those uh, moments like COVID-19, we oftentimes will put in place measures to uh, stop gaps to address a number of these um, issues that surface like access to healthcare. Um, and as we shift politically away from COVID-19 and as we take away a number of the policies that have expanded access to healthcare, um, we're actually um, leaving a huge gap that doesn't actually address the root cause of, of the challenges we see with our healthcare infrastructure, um, access to healthcare um, that, again, which disproportionately impacts poor people in communities of color in America, in Boston, in Massachusetts. Uh, Abdullah, your, your view about that uh, briefly, and then I want to turn to the issue of masking uh, with uh, Dr. Doron. So I think, you know, is it has politics affected this issue? Absolutely. But I would also say that, you know, there has never been a time in the United States where the health issues of healthcare and public health have not been uh, like political or influenced by politics. And you see this with how, you know, HIV AIDS played out in the 80s with the Reagan administration, you know, reluctant to really um, address the issue head on up until, you know, the late 80s and towards the end of their administration. Um, and so politics has always been a part of 
of dealing with these issues. And so part of the issue, I think, for public health and, you know, for people in, in the medical field and, uh, and, and the like who want to see these things be, uh, be tackled is how do you sort of develop the political will to, to push for, for the, the sort of um, policies that would address some of the systemic disparities that Dr. Martin um, addressed earlier. And, you know, that's a, that's a question that I don't necessarily have the answer to and I, I, the, that people have been working on um, for quite a while. Um, and so that's what I will just say about politics is that I think I resist the I resist the sort of uh, the framing that it's sort of unique to the COVID pandemic, but rather something that's you know has existed throughout the, um, the United States history in terms of uh, healthcare. But of course, you know every issue you can think of. That's true. From the Spanish flu to HIV, you're absolutely correct. These the, the politics have, have played a role. Uh, it seems almost inordinate this uh, time around, but again, that's a historical juxtaposition that I'm making and uh, and, uh, and I've seen. But I also want to ask about the issue of masking. Um, I I was thinking, I have, in my closet, I have dozens of masks from, uh, that uh, I purchased over the past uh, three years. You walk into a CVS, you walk into a um, Walgreens, so on and so forth, you see lots of masks that people aren't buying. Uh, Dr. Doran, I'm just wondering, as the chief infection control officer for Tufts Medical Health System, do you still recommend masks in most places? Uh, obviously, people are wearing it when they enter the hospital itself, for example. Yeah. I mean, I do give my recommendations in an individualized way based on people's risk and risk averseness. Um, you may not be aware, uh, but Massachusetts is one of, or perhaps the last state to have a healthcare mask mandate. Um, and we are anticipating that there will be an announcement about that. Uh, five or six of the largest hospitals and hospital systems did announce that they will be going mask optional when the Department of Public Health allows that. Um, that is not tied to the public health emergency that ends on May 11th, and many states um, have made that change long ago, some as many as seven months ago. The good news is that um, those states, those hospitals, my colleagues in those hospitals are not seeing an increase in hospital-acquired uh, COVID, and they're seeing something they didn't really anticipate, which is a really big increase in that human connection between provider and patient, and a really big increase in healthcare worker morale at a time when staffing is really low. And so there were kind of some unintended benefits, actually, um, of doing that. And so the real question today is, you know, with numbers being low right now, my hospital announced uh, its first day ever since March 2020 of zero COVID patients in the hospital. Um, the decision isn't, you know, is, it, is, is today the day to stop wearing masks in the hospital? The decision is, is whether you um, implement masks forever um, as the new normal um, or whether you make them optional. And uh, many Certainly many hospitals, hospital leaders and infection control leaders uh, have decided to go with mask optional. Um, other hospitals are going to keep masks uh, likely forever. And it, it is a really difficult decision. And it really depends on individual values. It's a really interesting point. Uh, and by the way, congratulations to, uh, to Tufts. Uh, I did not know that. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin filling in for Cali. And I'm speaking with Dr. Shira Doron. 
Chief Infection Control Officer for Tufts Medicine Health System. I'm speaking to Abdullah Shihipar, a writer and public health researcher at Brown University School of Public Health, and Dr. Atiyah Martin, CEO and founder of All Aces Incorporated. We're talking about how the end of the public health emergency will change how we deal with COVID. And since this is under the radar, I'm wondering if, as we wind down, you can tell me what your concerns are and what issues are still under the radar in the context of COVID uh, and uh, things that perhaps people don't know, Uh, perhaps good news, and there may be bad news in that answer. I don't know. Um, Atiyah, why don't we start with you? I knew you were going to do that to me. (laughs) So that's a hard question. It, It is indeed. And um, um, but but, well, so let me reframe it as one about um, resilience. That's something you focus on. What are we seeing? Uh, 2020 was such a horrible year in terms of uh, of this this pandemic. Uh, And I'm wondering what are we seeing now in 2023 and what we can hope for perhaps in 2024 based on your work? So when it comes to what we can learn from uh, the worst parts of this pandemic, I would say, number one, the importance of investing in public health infrastructure um, at the local, state, and federal level. We, as a country, tend to uh, do this roller coaster ride of investing in public health and then taking money away and then investing after things happen. And um, it has... Uh, made it difficult to do what it takes to be resilient, which I consider a process um, that we have to go through of developing the plans necessary to respond to things like COVID-19 and other disasters and emergencies that have public health implications. Um, the the supplies and equipment that we need in the, in the national stockpile, as well as um, in our public health and healthcare infrastructure, um, the training um, and exercising um, that we need to do in order to maintain our collective capabilities to coordinate across this infrastructure with traditional emergency management, um, folks who manage the, the big picture parts of the disasters that we face and emergencies we face. Um, so there's this, this very, um, this very amazing opportunity we have to truly invest in our public health infrastructure. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point, and I'm glad you pointed out the infrastructure. We're running out of time, I'm afraid, and uh, uh, just a few uh, seconds, if you will, um, um, Dr. Doran, what's your what's your view? Yeah, I agree with everything Dr. Martin said, and I think um, that one of the things we were pleasantly surprised about that we learned is how to develop vaccines and therapeutics in record time. And um, you know, we now know that mRNA technology can be developed for a new pathogen in as little as 100 days. So I think we can keep improving upon that speed. And that gives me uh, some degree of hope for the next pandemic. And there will be a next pandemic. And finally, Abdullah. One thing that's under the radar for me is uh, workplace. It's just the sheer amount of people who are still left behind and taking into account things like workplace transmission. People are still getting sick at work and they don't have access to sick leave as as they might have had earlier in the pandemic and these sort of additional protections. And as the emergency comes to an end, you know, the United States, I would say our healthcare system is in a state of constant emergency. And that's why we have to use these temporary measures to, you know, bring people up 
up to a basic standard of care. And so I think, you know, there's just a lot of people left behind and we have to take real action to, to, bring, to bring people up. I really appreciate all your collective knowledge, folks. This has been enlightening to say the least. Um, thank you all for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Coming up, 1994 in sports, the New York Rangers took home the Stanley Cup. Olympic skater Nancy Kerrigan was violently attacked on the ice. The culprit later identified as competing skater Tanya Harding. And Major League Baseball's World Series was canceled. But over at the minor league team, the Asheville Tourists in North Carolina, a young Ryan McGee was living his best life. His new book recounts his harrowing and hilarious experiences as an intern with the tourists. Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time, is our May selection for Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar. I'm Philip Martin for Callie Crosley. Thank you.